It is with great joy, great privilege, and much trembling and fear that I am honored to be in the pulpit again and continuing in this wonderful letter. And I want to focus in, I want you to keep in mind the last part of verse 5. Paul says, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Keep that present before you as we go through this passage. But before we begin, it's a very sad, grievous reality of what today is considered to be the church. We have everything from feel-good gatherings to entertainment to sanctimonious rituals as well now as a social, political, and even a sexual preference platform where men who are identified as ministers, as reverends, as priests, and even sadly as pastors are at their best nothing more than life coaches or MCs of the entertainment that they convey Deceptive marketers to want nothing more than a stirred crowd who are ready to support their organization. But what we have before us so very succinctly but so rich and powerful is the scriptural truth and the reality of what, of what God has ordained and intended the church to look like. How it is to grow and thrive and by all divine power for a purpose within the, the temp- to be a, t- a power within the temporal realities of this life to impact the world in which we live and beyond in our eternal consummation in Christ. But in this particular section of the letter, what we read from Paul to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, Laodicea, the areas of the Lycus Valley, and today to us, We're dealing with biblical subjects of eschatology, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of our completeness in Christ, the mystery of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, and the apostolic suffering. And what may seem like some insignificant verses focusing on Paul's identity and mission we would be very wise to heed and hear and to peer intently into these truths because they are relevant for all true believers who seek to find their identity properly grounded in the gospel they've received. First, it's worth very serious consideration to briefly examine Paul's autobiographical account, mainly to get an overview of his heart's commitment to these saints but also to give us a clear indication of what an apostle, what a true minister of God's word, what a pastor of Jesus Christ to his church looks like. In other words, what are some of the key characteristics or qualifications of a pastor that are in very stark contrast to what we see in today's gatherings under religious pretenses? And what's interesting in these last verses of chapter 1 and in other scriptural accounts of what Paul, what is missing, what we don't see in the scriptures. Paul told in Philippians 3, 8 and 9 that all of his Jewish credentials, 
all of his educational background, his teaching of the Torah that comprised his life before Christ are nothing more than rubbish, refuse, dung, a loss given up so that he may gain Christ, that he may know him and the power of his resurrection and to proclaim nothing more than Christ crucified to a lost and dying world. His focus is solely derived from and based upon the call of God and his power and in the midst of his trials and his own weaknesses of whom is the only source of grace and that which is supernatural, that which is able to empower weak vessels for the greater purposes of proclaiming the gospel of Christ, his good news. You see, Paul's mission is now grounded within this significant unfolding of of salvific history. It's an instrument, he is an instrument, through which this very mystery of God, Christ himself, may be revealed to those he encounters. And then it is further replicated through the church in wider salvation plan of God, which is Christ's body on this earth. In our day, in our culture, great, greatness in a person is often defined by a person's popularity, maybe his hairstyle, maybe his success and wealth, or his social presence, or a political status. And this pericope of scripture is given to us now as a very powerful reminder for the believers in the church to live, to exhibit, to display a very different culture, a reality that is measured in a radically different way to the world. In ways that demonstrate any member of God's family is considered as great as they humbly accomplish the call within the redemptive plan of God, both wide and specific. And Paul is going to describe for us what this Christ-centered culture should look like in our text today as it's understood and believed and lived out by the Christian. So when Paul says back in verse 24 of chapter 1 that he suffers for their sake, and in verse 29 that he labors and strives according to the power of God, he's not referring to working through some minor inconveniences that hindered some selfish desire or imposed on his comfort. No, he was trying to put himself at the center, nor was he trying to put himself at the center of God's work in history. He is describing that inward struggle of earnest desire, the joy, the praying and preaching, the privilege of the power of God being worked through him as a weak vessel on behalf and for the sake of the gospel of Christ, and the work towards the ultimate goal of presenting every man perfect in Christ. We see this in multiple accounts to the saints throughout the scriptures. And now in verse 1 of chapter 2, he brings this awareness. He centers this specific labor now very intimately on behalf of the Colossians, the Laodiceans, the Lycus Valley, and in our day to us as we are, as believers in Christ, situated in this day and also beneficiaries of God's work through his Son. See, Paul is opening his heart here. And in these next few verses, he's addressing his earnest desire and hopes for these saints and even future believers. 
It's a common occurrence that grave misunderstandings easily grow where, where dangerous speculations or even accusations can arise when we never meet people face-to-face or we depend on overheard garbled and second-hand accounts of their attitudes and personalities. And from this account, it appears that this type of situation was arising in Colossae as, as these false teachers, probably very few in number, were taking the opportunity for disparagement and slander. And if we understand Paul's earlier defense of Epaphras correctly in chapter 1, and if the Colossians and Laodiceans had never seen Paul or heard him speak, then it's very likely that his position could be misunderstood and their their mutual confidence corrupted because of the slander of these false teachers. All of this would, would fertilize the soil for dissensions and divisions in the hearts of the believers and make an entry point for that false gospel to be presented. But now Paul breaks in with this glorious conjunction, this, this piercingly intimate words for these saints For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea and for all who have not personally seen my face. In essence, he's sharing his heart as a pastor. And if I may paraphrase it, my dear heart, my dear friends, my my heart is for you and with you. And though I may not be there in body, yet I am with you in spirit and have a deep concern for you and for those who love Jesus Christ. He has a deep concern for his fellow believers, and in the strength of God, he pours out his love by exhorting and admonishing them to a steadfastness, to a maturity and stability that can only be found in Christ in his day and in ours. Is this our desire? Is, is this your desire? to have, to, to truly experience in this life a deep, soulish stability that is planted on a completely immovable, unshakable, irrefutable truth. That's a capital T truth, the truth that can only be experienced by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is what Paul now gives instruction to us and what he struggles for on their behalf And it's set out for us in three main points that will result in godly discipline in our lives and the stability of our faith in Christ. The three points are first, encouraged hearts. The second is settled assurance. And three is knowing Christ. Paul says in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. At the outset, Paul's desire is that the hearts of the believers be encouraged. Actually, it's, it's that their hearts would be strengthened because it is only a strengthened heart, an encouraged heart that is steadfast. And this is more than just a garnering of our emotions. For the heart does include and refer to the emotions, but it is more to do with the inner person, the center of our life. And here the focus is, is 
intently on the mind because of the context with the reader's danger here of being carried off by false teaching. But we are also to be strengthened against the deceptions that remain in our flesh, that war within the believer because of the law of sin still at work in our flesh, that it is also our emotions that will respond and follow after what the mind perceives and what we understand cognitively and believe by faith. So to be strengthened and encouraged in our hearts is an active work that takes place from the inside out. It is not a superficial thing, but what is worked into the very core of our being, it is both a practical ingesting of the word of God, the truth and the promises of God into our minds, and it is simultaneously and very importantly a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a humble approach and a sought-out request for the Holy Spirit to accomplish and work this strengthening in us through the Word that will search out, that will cut, that will examine, that will heal and correct and encourage and teach and train our hearts in righteousness so that we are adequately, adequately equipped for every good work. Isn't it true that whatever we fill our heart with, what we fill our mind with, will inevitably issue forth in our behavior? What we set our minds upon will be to us a work through us, just like food does for the body. If we only take in unhealthy foods in this temple that God has provided, it will result in an unhealthy, useless vessel. But if we take the truth of God into our minds, if we meditate upon it, if we search it out and let it transform us from within, it will have an outworking that is predetermined to accomplish the works that God has ordained for us to do. Yes, it it is very clear, it is very simple, but yet how often our deceitful emotions, our selfish desires, our temporal pleasures draw us away, and rather to have the sweetness of the Lord and his truth that satisfies us to the very core of our beings. When we are strengthened by the Spirit and the Word of God, Christ will dwell. He will abide within us, and we will know the love of God. We will be rooted and grounded in love, knowing the love of Christ and the fullness of God. Where do we know this promise? Let's look at one key passage very quickly. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3 with me real quick. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says in verses 14 to 19 here, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Again, one of his his exhorting prayers from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
a truly phenomenal promise to us to, and to the saints. And it is in this same light that Paul continues back in Colossians chapter 2 with, with verse 2 that having been knit together in love, because fervent love is, is necessary, is a necessary balance to a strong mind, an encouraged mind. Without love, we, we become what? A noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. But a strengthened heart with the centrality of love will further unite us and bring us together. Yes, it's going to make us vulnerable to one another so that we may encourage one another in Christ and so that we do not fall into the trap and the deceitfulness of sin. It is a beautiful, it's beautiful that this participle is here. Sumbibazo in the Greek, it, it explains further the, the encouragement, the strengthening that is furthered in the heart through love for Christ and outwardly displayed and manifested in our love to one another. Look again back over at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians 4, verse 16. This is one of the scriptures we discuss during membership meetings and so critical to remember as a member of Christ's body. For Paul's talking here about the church as Christ is ahead, he says in verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Consider just the beauty the, the glory, the purpose for us in this life of how the body of Christ is brought together. Believers are called by God through Christ. We all possess the same eternal life. We are all placed into this body by the same spirit. We all share a common life with love at its basis, but our unity is not cold or merely organizational. It is organic as we are all now part of the living head in Christ Jesus. And this kind of knowledge that Paul preaches of and encourages in the hearts of the believers that strengthens them is a knowledge that organically produces love, mutual love, not puffed up, not arrogant. It's a love that builds true fellowship across all lines of normal human relations, across all family bounds, across all nationalities, across all races, across all languages, and all the other things in our natural state that would divide us. And praise God, we see this beautifully manifested in this church by his working. And it is from this love of Christ and for Christ that we also share with one another sacrificially and willingly, and that transcends those things that makes us different. The Lord Jesus said this would be the identifying mark that would characterize his people. That they truly love one another. Because they have been with Christ, because they are in Christ, they are able to love as they have been loved and cared for without pretense. For we as wrath-deserving enemies once were, 
are now fully embraced by the majestic God and Father of heaven through the death of his Son and the work of the Spirit within us. And we're also able to care and comfort for one another because we so cared for, we have been so cared for and comforted by God through Christ, who alone can comfort those who are afflicted. This is what Paul tells us again in 1 Corinthians 1, where 3 through, 3 through 6, where knowing and experience this will, this comfort from God that enables us to comfort one another that knowing and and experiencing this will impede any sense of superiority for the ones whom we offer care to. Instead of caring for one another becoming a competitive act, it is to be actively involved in a believing community where our vulnerability and weaknesses actually become our bond. I want to read a very powerful quote by the late Francis Schaeffer. He said, close to the end of his life, that the unity of the church would be the final apologetic to the watching world. And in his book, The Mark of the Christian, Schaefer writes, quote, In John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward other Christians, the world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. Here, in John seventeen twenty one, Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Now that is frightening. Should we not feel some emotion at this point? Close quote. Paul's concern was that the unity of these believers and for us as professing believers be displayed and actually measured. How do we measure this? We can measure our love for one another and our prayers and praying for one another. Earnestly praying for one another. Do we honestly pray for one another? It can be measured practically in helps and assistance of one another in time of need, sacrificially giving. All that we have are various gifts and talents and resources can and should be put to use for the good and benefit, especially for those within the household of God. Praise God again. We thank him for the evidence of this being exercised in our body for his work that he has done. It's also measured in our forbearance with one another, from within marriages, between husband and wife, within the family, with our children, with our extended families, and within the greater context of this body. When we are the victims of sin, how do we forbear with one another? Our love can be seen in how we respond when our hearts have been wounded or wrongly accused. Our love can be measured in our concern for one another. And this is something we must strive for, something that goes beyond the normal bounds of family. Especially in this day and age do we need love that extends to the worst of our enemies. So our our hearts are encouraged and strengthened by a loving fellowship 
and genuine care among the brethren. And now we come to our second point, the settled assurance or the settled conviction. Paul says that not only for our hearts to be encouraged, having been knit together in love, but that we would also attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Paul is very emphatic at this point in the use of the repetition here in all of his genitive phrases where he uses nouns to modify nouns further. But listen, he's driving home a truth to us that Christ and Christ alone is the very source of every conceivable bit of spiritual knowledge that is worth having. The ESV captures the Greek structure very well here. It says, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. Think of this, dear friends. Can we truly find any assurance in anything in our day and age within this world, even within ourselves, within our own power, perceived power, that that will bring a full assurance and conviction and stability in this life, apart from that which is only found in Christ. Paul's desire is that we have a settled assurance or conviction about Christ, a settled commitment, a stability by faith in him. Scripture describes the great benefit of this assurance as wealth and riches but not speaking here of monetary gain, gold or silver, not a wealth and health prosperity gospel, not having self-determined needs or desires met. But what he's getting at is the assurance, the full assurance believers can fully enjoy of the blessings, the riches that are only found in Christ now in this present life and for eternity. Even Proverbs 8.18 tells us that riches and honors are with the wisdom in Christ, enduring wealth and righteousness far better than gold and silver. A steadfast Christian should have and can have a settled assurance. And this is what leads to a healthy and fruitful Christian experience in our walk and communion in abiding in Christ. Assurance of understanding where we stand in Christ by faith, by resting in his accomplished work on our behalf, and in knowing the goodness and glories of Christ will enable us to turn aside from the enticing words and allurements of this world to resist the devil and his temptations, to mortify the remaining deeds of our flesh, as well as turn from the words and deception of false prophets and teachers. It is this same settled assurance in our position in Christ that enabled many martyrs like Polycarp, one of the earliest disciples of the Apostle John, when at 86 years old he stood before the proconsul in Rome and was offered a plea for his life. Proconsul said to him, Polycarp, I'll let you live I will not put your feet to the fire. I will not burn you alive if you will but deny Christ. Polycarp responded in this glorious response. Eighty-six years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
And he was then bound and burned alive at the stake rather than forsake anything that he had in Christ. If we truly strive to live daily in this life with a settled assurance and conviction of the glory which is ours in Christ, we are able to enjoy the foretaste of glory divine of what awaits us in heaven and strengthens us in hope for living in these last days. Paul addresses how the wealth and riches that come from the full assurance of that assurance brings, or that assurance brings, and how they're now to be realized in the believer. He does this through this noun, sunesis, in its simplest form as understanding, and its rendering in the Greek is better explained by by joining these two phrases of knowing or defining complete understanding, something like this, so that they may have the full riches in order that they may know. This, this understanding or in order that they may know simply but so importantly refers to applying biblical truth and principles in everyday life of the believer. It's also the exclusive characteristic of the Christian because 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are only spiritually appraised. The natural man, apart from Christ, outside of Christ, is darkened in his understanding of these types of spiritual matters. And it is only by the, the experiential, the experimental realization of biblical truth in the heart and mind and the life of the believer that it becomes truly understood and leads to this assurance of salvation, this eternal hope, and the ultimately realized kingdom of God. Simply put, I like simple puts, our knowing and our acting upon truth, spiritual truth, leads to what is described here as full assurance of understanding. And this brings us to our third and final point, one that we could spend a month of Sundays or a year of Sundays on, is knowing Christ. We're studying that in the men and women study. It's so very rich, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself, or the mystery of God, namely Christ. Steadfastness in the Christian life is only through knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only that our hearts might be encouraged and strengthened by being knit together in love and by attaining or having the full riches of understanding, but also resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, now revealed to us, which is all that Christ is in the eternal realities within himself, the fullness of his righteousness perfectly executed in willing submission to the glory of his Father, and now to have that righteousness imputed to us, us enabling fellowship with the Father. And in light of the high Christology from chapter 1 and verses 15 to 20, Paul is clearly making the mystery of God the object of that knowing and distinctly identifies that mystery with Christ. 
And in the light of the false teacher's attempt to peddle the Colossians another form of knowledge or what they considered a deeper knowledge, the apostle emphatically stresses in this verse to tell them that Christ, the hope of glory, he alone is the true knowledge we are to have and what every person needs for them then and for us now. Paul is promoting some knowledge filled, excuse me, Paul is not promoting some knowledge filled with contrived esoteric abstract ideas borrowed from human philosophy or the traditions of men. But what is utmost and what is so desperately needed for uh, any of us to gain the knowledge of our beloved Savior is only found initially through a saving personal knowledge and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only God-man, because he is the hope of eternal life, eternal glory, and it is only in him that all the treasures of salvation, of wisdom, and knowledge are found. We all already have a relationship with Christ if we are believers in him. Or, for those who are not, we all have a relationship with him. We are all either related to him as being under his wrath and judgment, or we are bound to him by grace through faith. And it is this saving personal knowledge of Christ and the heart of man that Paul is after. And in this believing and knowing of Christ, who he is, all that he has perfectly accomplished on behalf of sinners to rescue them from their sin, from eternal hell, all of his attributes and worth, the fullness of his deity in whom all spiritual sufficiency resides, this is him of whom we are to know and enjoy. And it is only in this new relationship granted by the grace of God through faith and the repentance from our sin, that we are enabled and considered righteous before God, that we be willing and freely able to obey our Savior and Lord, and that we will have true stability in this life. It is how we will be steadfast no matter what type of storms come our way, whether a hurricane named Irma whether it's physical affliction, a job loss, divorce, or even death. Paul longs for us to be built up in these graces and rest assured in Christ. And perhaps there are some here today who do not have this knowledge, who can honestly say they, they are not encouraged, they are not assured in understanding even who Christ is, and don't know this type of reigning love in your life, in your heart. You only know and experience selfishness and confusion, anxiety. You, you don't get this mutual love and selflessness that are shared by brothers and sisters in Christ that Paul is speaking about. Perhaps you don't even understand what it is to have true saving knowledge of Christ. And if this is you... Christ is waiting for you to come, to come to him today. Today is the day of salvation. 
what we have just read, what we have studied, is from Christ himself to you. And Christ is telling you that apart from him, you cannot know true love. You cannot know encouragement or strength. You will not have assurance or hope in this life. Apart from him, you are still in your sin. And all of these redeeming realities are only found in him. And if you would have that knowledge, if you would see your sinfulness, your hopefulness, your hopelessness, and a dire need to know him, to have him, then come to him today. Trust in him. Turn to him and leave your dying sin behind you. If you are not sure how to do this, how to trust him, then come see me after the service. Come see Pastor Emilio. Talk to one of the deacons. But please do not leave this place until you have done business with Christ for the sake of your own eternal soul. You will find, you can find, you may find, you are welcome to find that he is all-sufficient, that he can strengthen and truly and deeply encourage you. You can experience supernatural love that only Christians experience between one another, and you will have eternal life knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent for us. And even if you are a believer here today, and you're struggling in these areas, I'm praying for you and will pray for you that our body will be built up in these graces. Even as fundamental as they are, they do not expire, they do not lose their purpose or efficacy, but may they flourish in your soul, in your life, in your family, in all that you do, in an active love for one another and beyond. How we need this, How we need in this day to stop playing the games of Christian life and get serious in our lives about the God that we love and serve and love for one another. May the Lord do and continue to do his great work through his word and by his spirit in all of us. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth and its power. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us today through your word. And I ask, O God, that your spirit would apply these truths to us. 